Welcome to God is Open in an impromptu live stream going over this. I, I meant to be reviewing this uh, for a while. This talk between Leighton Flowers and Mike Winger on open theism. And I hear there's a spicy little clip in there in which Mike Winger is like, don't listen to anyone but pastors or something like that. So we'll see if we can hit that today. We'll just go ahead and hit play and see what Mike Winger has to say about open theism. Open theism is going to be, it's going to be, my prediction is a bigger and bigger issue for us to cover in the church. Issue. Because the online world is now governing the discussions, yeah. right? And right. this thing is rising up. And so I'm eventually I'll, I'll come to it. I have a, so many things I'm preparing for right now. <laughs> but, now I, I'm, yeah. Just real quick. I mean, I mean, as we close here, and I, this will spark some um, some comments, I'm sure, in the commentary, because I've got a, I've got friends who are open theists who follow the podcast, um, and 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 uh, and and comment pretty uh, often. But I have often said, I want to see if you agree with me on this, because I haven't heard your stuff on open theism yet. Um, I have often said that I think that the open theists are making basically the same mistakes as our deterministic friends are, and 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 by concluding, now they're both going different directions. But they yeah. both conclude that if God foreknows a choice, then it, it must be determined. And therefore, yep. the open theist says, well, God doesn't foreknow our choices then. And Definitely the, the determinists say, well, he determines our choices and we've got to deal with it. And so uh, just take a look at what's going on there. First of all, Leighton Flowers is framing the debate. So he's saying this is the debate. This is the one issue on which it turns. And for a lot of open theists, you know, that could be true, but a lot of open theists, that, that's not the reason that they're open theists. A lot of open theists are biblically based. They look at the Bible and the biblical data, and that's what has, has led them to open theism. If you're actually going to discuss this type of uh, philosophy with individuals like this, in, with provisionists who believe that God has exhaustive omniscience of all future events, get them to own their terms. They like to do this Moat and Bailey thing where they throw something out Oh, um, God's knowledge doesn't cause events to happen. Well, define that knowledge. I mean, I have knowledge about the future all the time. Is is the knowledge that I have about the future the same type of knowledge God has about the future? Get them to own up and define what knowledge that they are ascribing to God. And if that knowledge is of propositional truths, which cannot be falsified, then that's a faded event. It's a faded event. It's not like my knowledge of the future which could be falsified, which things can happen and we could do other things other than what I know is going to happen. And it, no one no one says, oh, you didn't know that was going to happen. Well, I did know that was going to happen, but uh, circumstances changed. So what type of knowledge are you talking about, Leighton Flowers? Own up to it, describe that knowledge, and then we'll see if that knowledge is compatible with your system. Instead of this Mott and Bailey thing where they're like, well, we know things in the future and... Uh, it doesn't cause those events to happen. Therefore, God can know events in the future and uh, not cause those to happen. It's a Moton Bailey. It's a switch. They're, they're using equivocation, different terms, different words in various contexts, bait and switching you to try to agree with their premises. When they ascribe knowledge to God, it's not the knowledge that I have of the future. So uh, often when I'm talking to these people, they're like, you believe that God doesn't know the future. I said, that's not true at all. I think God knows the future. I know the future. So if I know the future, how much more so does God? And then they have to actually 
bring the debate back into a part, a point in which they have to defend their actual beliefs rather than just some sort of, uh, you know, this, this broad thing that makes you sound so terrible for denying. Just say, yeah, God knows the future. I know the future too. And so maybe define what you mean by God knowing the future. And then they're going to have to defend what they actually believe rather than this other thing. But I'll let them go on. This is apparently not the main point of their talk. It's just a thing Lane Flowers likes to do all the time. He likes to, anytime he talks about open theism, he brings it back to this. He says, oh, they all believe the knowledge is positive. It's like, well, uh, well, I got a lot of podcasts. I don't have very many talking about that specific point. I do have some pretty good ones, which I've not heard responses to, but but uh, I guess we'll we'll just keep playing. Yeah, um, they they hit the same fork in the road. Right. One goes left, one goes right. right. <laughs> like, but and the fork is the belief that God's foreknowledge is determinism. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. If he if he knows what's going to happen, then it must be already set or fixed, and therefore determined by the yeah, one who and, knows it. Zamokuwaki, I think I said that right. He says they think that uh, they, if they bring up the Kayla situation that they use as justification for the claim that foreknowledge does not necessi necessitate determining. And so they'll, they'll point to David and uh, that the Kayla situation in which God says, oh, if you stay, then this is going to happen. Um, but when you point out parallels, I pointed out Abraham to this one Calvinist once or Molinist or whatever he was. And I said, well, the exact same phrases are used over here. Abraham says, I know that if we go to the city, they're going to see you, you're a beautiful woman, and they're going to kill me, and they're going to take you. It's like, so he knows counterfactuals too. Does that prove he knows all counterfactuals or prove anything spectacular about his knowledge of future events? And what do they do? They, they go back into special pleading. Well, well, my scenario involves God, and yours does Abraham. Therefore, the God scenario means my my Molinism and the the Abraham situation. That's just normal talking. So it's all, all special pleading. It's so funny. And that that's I think a modal fallacy, which we can get into, uh, probably get into in your discussions. But but here's my here's the question I was going to get to. Do you treat open? Yeah, uh, Adam writes. It isn't God's knowledge that is causative. It is the knowledge being exhaustive and certain unchangeable, right? So the knowledge is of something. Something exists. For me to have knowledge of a red car, that red car has to exist. So if God knows true propositional values about future events, uh, the knowledge might not be the truth maker, quote unquote truth maker, using these philosophical terms. The knowledge might not be the truth maker, but something is, and it's not us, and, and we can't change it. Whatever made that truth, it's Fatalism. Not even God, not even God can change the future in classical theism. In uh, this normal Christianity, where God has exhaustive certain knowledge of all future propositions, God is as subject to fate as any of us. He can't add one raindrop to one rainstorm, as Will Duffy points out to Matt Slick. Matt Slick didn't like that question. Can God add one raindrop to one? One storm, Matt Slick's like, I don't know what you mean. What, what, I, I don't get the question. <laughs> you don't get the question. You don't get the question. Open theist, just as much as My brothers. kids are trampling around out, upstairs. Deterministic Calvinists. Quite a lot of babies up there. Okay, so here's how I handle this. <laughs> um, <clears throat> in my studies of open theism, I've mostly focused on, is it 
biblical? Like, are there, what are the biblical, like, proof texts for open theism? What are the ones opposed to it? That's what I focused on. I've also spent a little time on the philosophy of it and the idea right. of necessity versus certainty um, and how those are different concepts. And that's too much to unpack at the moment. Right. But those are the things I focused on. Um, now, zooming out, does open theism inherently, like, conflict with Christianity? Um, I think that there's a version of open theism where you can still be a Christian. Right. Because oh, you could, you could even say God just chooses oh, thank to you. not know what'll happen. <laughs> yeah. And I don't about? agree. I don't agree with that. Yeah. But I wouldn't call it apostate. I, I wouldn't call yeah. it that. Then there's another version of open theism where you're really calling into question some of God's very attributes. And I oh, start yeah. to, it just starts to raise really serious question marks yeah. in my mind. Well, when I'm in those, those definite attributes that are well attested in the Bible, not hopefully, hopefully these are not theological attributes that <laughs> it's like, oh wow, how generous of him! Oh, you consider us Christians? Why, so thank you, uh, thank you, Mike Winger. Oh, thank you. Um, but uh, hopefully, these attributes that you're going to be championing aren't unattested ones that are not found in the Bible, not well defined, and have to come from shady proof texts. Hopefully that's not the case, Mike Winger. Maybe you could elaborate. Maybe you won't. Like that, I, I tend to treat people like they're Christians because sure. ironics in the house. Gracious than not. Yeah. Um, well, but I guess the thing is, I, you know, for me, both of them are making philosophical a philosophical mistake. Both of them, can, oh. if, both of them are affirming genuine faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, trusting in Him for the atonement of their sins. But they're coming to different philosophical uh, conclusions with regard to how to deal with omniscience. Then I can no more throw out my open theist brothers than I can my deterministic brothers, because again, I think they're making the same philosophical uh, quandary and, and, and a mistake. Now that being said, um, he, here's the other point that I really I I, I kind of have to push is that if the the determinist is wrong. And again, I'm not necessarily throwing all Calvinists in the deterministic bus because some of them don't believe that some of them actually. So what's happening here is Lane Flowers seems to be making a positive case as to why open theists in concept are better than Calvinists. And Roger Olson has an article about that as well. How, you know, Calvinists it really defame God. Uh, they say he's responsible for the worst sins in the world. You guys ever noticed the thing that Calvinists do if you want to talk about a specific sin? And they're like, well, I'll give you something better. I'll one-up you. How about the death of Christ? Well, well, we could get to that second. Let's talk about this. How about uh, torturing toddlers? Um, we'll do that first because something in my mind tells me you don't want to talk about torturing toddlers. And you actually think that is really worse than Jesus dying on the cross voluntarily for the sins of mankind. But you don't actually want to talk about torturing toddlers because uh, it doesn't make you feel nice inside. So we could deal with my example and then switch to yours. So Calvinists will do that, that if uh, there's a child who's tortured and murdered. I've been watching a lot of these crime series on YouTube, and there, there are some really, really messed up people in this world doing some horrific things. And uh, Calvinism ascribes all that to God, which is, which is incredibly evil. And uh, not, not even just like being a broad supervisor of it, but in meticulous detail, every single action. So in concept, just looking at the concept, Calvinism is way more evil out of the pale uh, to Roger Olson that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not portraying a very good picture of God. So Leighton Flowers is kind of doing the, the Roger Olson thing here. 
actually affirm true libertarian. Mike Winger's not having it. Free will somehow. Um, I don't, inconsistently, but some of them do say we believe God, that you know the the choice of salvation is not libertarianly free, but there mm -hmm. are libertarianly free choices and and all those kinds of things, and that, that's a very very low form of, of Calvinism. That's not the. I had that one video that uh, critiqued Mike Winger. So today in church we sang that song, "The Reckless Love of God," fantastic song. It's all about how God is doing something risky, reckless. He has reckless love towards mankind. And the Calvinist, when that song was published, they, they got all in a little tizzy and they wrote all their articles against it. And Mike Winger reviews the song. And he's like, oh, this is such a terrible song. And then I, I had that review of his, uh, his uh, thing about that. And then all his fans found me because he like pointed them to the video. And that's like one of my most downvoted videos ever because all these Mike Winger fans were swarming and downvoting. But if you watch the video, I, I put a lot of humor in there. I'm, I'm, a, I'm not very, I'm not super critical of him. Oh, Mike Winger seems to have some sort of interesting cult following. And I don't, I don't blame him. He's a charismatic guy. He could, he could draw a crowd. But I just thought it was funny that uh, they were all swarming to downvote. Uh, it's like that doesn't that's not a very nice mike winger fans g consciousness what's up what's up in the house all right we'll hit play the obviously the statements of faith and the the more scholarly perspective but nevertheless i'm not trying to throw all of them in the deterministic bus but the the system itself is theistic determinism it's a form of compatibilism yes. which is theistic determinism um if they're wrong they're systematic if properly applied. If the Calvinist is wrong, brings into question the attributes of God's character, His holiness, because you're ultimately having God determine sinful things that mm. He's not determining. If open theism is wrong, they are they are bringing into question God's attributes of His ability to know future events. Which mm. is worse, bringing into question God's character or His ability? Because I, Mike Winger's struggling there. Wrong. We shouldn't do either one. We shouldn't you look at his face. Question God's ability or his character. But I'm just telling. If, so Mike Winger wants to wants to contradict this and say no. Open theism is worse than Calvinism. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Calvinist ascribes all sorts of evil to God. Yep. Got it. But open theists are worse. That's that's what's going through his mind right now. If you were spreading lies about me. I would much rather you spread lies about my inability to bench press what I can bench press or inability to do some powerful thing or a good mm -hmm. thing or whatever, some ability than to impugn my character to go around saying, Hey, Leighton, you know, his character is not good. Or he's not trustworthy in that way. <clears throat> you see what yeah. I'm saying? I'm just, I'm, 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 and again, I'm not trying to pit <laughs> determinist against open theism. I'm just saying it seems to me because open theism is relatively a newer way of thinking and it's not has been established or known throughout the church is that people tend to be more hard on it than the determinist. And, and, and those of us in the middle, I don't know that, that we should be very hard, more hard on one of them than the other. Mike, we not having it firmly against look, look and say, his wheels are turning. We don't agree with what your, your conclusions are. So here's, here's See what I'm the, saying? the other side of it, right? Um, <laughs> the other side. <laughs> Open theism, um, if if I understand the way people often come to open theism is it's an, it's an attempt at uh, theodicy, at a defense of why, the God, why God allows evil. And basically the part that's open theism says, hey, well, he didn't even know that was going to happen. Right. You can't blame him because he didn't know. 
And I would say, um, that doesn't mean anything to me because in the middle of the evil thing God didn't know about, now he knows. Why doesn't he stop it right then? Right. Like you still have to deal with God allowing these things to happen. And so it doesn't really solve anything. All it does is strip, potentially strip God of some of an attribute the Bible declares that he has. Right. And um, and I know open theists are going to be like, Mike, you don't understand our position. You're misrepresenting us. Yeah. And I, I will say, I think, and I and I could be wrong here, but I'm, and I mean that sincerely, my studies so far show me you don't understand your position if you're an open theist and you say that. Right. Um, it's not me. Um, yeah. But <clears throat> look at like Greg Boyd and his stuff. He says on open theism, I'm embarrassed to listen to what he says about it. I'd much rather hear a Calvinist <laughs> talk about determinism as far as what offends me more. <laughs> really? I'm embarrassed. <laughs> uh, you hear laid flowers, laid flowers, like, really? Uh, ha, 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 ha. Uh, oh, really? Oh, okay, Mike Winger. And Mike Winger is getting all adamant. So Mike Winger wants to throw his hat in with the Calvinist because he sees himself as, I, I don't know, like... Uh, Oh, they, they have a theological grounding and we do, and we're going to duke it out. And then there's these interlopers, these open theists. Ah, and then there's Greg Boyd. And he's, he said something, Greg Boyd said something that I don't like one time. And, uh, and, and these open theists, they're trying to defend God's goodness, but their defense doesn't work for me. Well, I'll tell you what. So if I, I had a kid and I knew he was, uh, going to be the Unabomber and, uh, uh, that and I, I had him anyways. I went through all the efforts to have that kid and, and raise him to be the Unabomber. Or if I was that kid's parent and then found out like a week before that he's going to do the Unabomber thing with the bombings, and uh, I didn't stop him, which one is worse? Which one's worse? So I would say that the the person who purposely bred that kid to do the Unabombing. Maybe we'll use like a Timothy McVeigh or something who just kills a mass load of people. Uh, I would say that first person is worse uh, because they actively have this all in mind rather than a parent not wanting to turn in the children as the event is happening. So to some extent, there is less culpability. I'm not saying that all of it's dissolved in the open theist model, but there is less culpability than that first model, the one that Mike Winger, uh, he, th he thinks they're on par, apparently. He demonizes the Old Testament and demonizes a lot of the stuff that's in, and I'm going like, my goodness, are you an atheist? Like what, this is this is what I hear from the atheists I deal with online. Yeah, now yeah. it's coming out of a Christian pastor. Uh, but, but, and then he thinks he's, he's so in, you're making a great, good point. He's, he seems to be trying to justify God. So Adam writes, I don't think either, either of these guys has a robust understanding of open theism and the spectrum of positions and options and reasons for coming to the position that that is assuming that there one of them maybe maybe Leighton Flowers is not being diplomatic and understands that there are other ways of coming to open theism but he doesn't want to engage those other positions because it's a lot easier to pretend it's monolithic that's that's all this philosophical thing so so all you have to do is attack this one philosophical issue rather than dealing with having to be forced to deal with the real reasons, the biblical reasons. By, by using his open theism to justify why these things happen theodicy wise, yeah. but it really doesn't help his, his case any for the reasons you already mentioned. Um, and I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that there are um, mistakes that, 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 that systematic is making and, I, the thing is, I guess I don't find them any more grievous 
than the mistakes that our deterministic brothers are making. Anymore? How about a lot less? Equally as grievous, in other words. I, I think they're both misinterpreting the text. I think they're both misinterpreting... Philo- uh, I think they both come at it with a bad philosophy to begin with mm-hmm. to, in order to come to conclusions. That, But but because just because one of them's newer or uh, just now being more popularized doesn't make it... What you see here is Layton Flowers put down a position, and he was pretty adamant about that. He received a little bit of pushback from his friend, and now he's walking it back just a little bit to try to temper his original position, uh, to maybe saving face with his friend Mike Winger. Um, more more likely to damn you to hell. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> if that makes sense, I, I you know they're both of yeah. them are making mistakes that I think. And I get what you're getting at because you're like you see Calvinism as at its core, really compromising God's very character. And here's my question for you, right? Okay. If Calvinism's wrong, um, then it may very well at its core compromise God's very character because of the deterministic system. But let's just hypothetically say, if, if, Calvinism, if Calvinism was true, if, okay. d- if total determinism was true, would you conclude that, that there was something wrong in the character of God? If God determined me to, yeah. No, no, I, I mean, I mean, not like that. You know what I mean? Like, sincerely, well, that's though, true, though. Like, I mean, that, if you think if if determinism is true, that I'm only going to do what God's determined me to do. So, I, I, I mean, I mean, I, would you be logically consistent if you concluded that God is therefore somehow morally compromised because of determinism? Um. Okay, so if okay, we're okay. So if determinism is true, let's just pretend determinism is true. Yeah, which I am 100% on board with you. It's not It's right, not true. Yeah, it's yeah. not accurate. I don't again, my it. brain is trying to work around this because obviously if determinism is true, I'm only going to determine what God has determined for me to determine. But but, but the question's not, but, what would you determine? What would you think if determinism was happening to you right, right now? Right. No, instead, it's asking, a thought experiment, right? Right. You're asking uh, instead, would it therefore make God's character, would it impugn God's character if determinism is true? Are you okay with the conclusion that God is morally wrong? That's where I go. I cannot go there. I, I, if, well, if, yeah, well, I, I would, I mean, if, if open, the, <laughs> if I said the same thing about open theism, I would say the same thing. I mean, if open theism is true, um, I'd have to come to the conclusion that if, Hey, if it's true, it's true. And God's not, um, morally, uh, evil. I mean, so the argument here seems to be Calvinists can't be blamed for their abhorrent theology, because if Calvinism was true, that vindicates God for doing terrible things, and uh, we'd be admiss to call him a monster, although he's doing the most horrible things we could imagine. There's uh, this is a very interesting argument that uh, don't, no matter how horrific of a thing that God does, there's nothing in which he can be called uh, blameworthy. That, that is an interesting argument. It's not very convincing to anyone who has any basic uh, dignity or respect or any any morality. I, I don't think I don't think it's a tenable position. But Mike Winger's position is Calvinists are okay because they fall if their theology is true, it vindicates the horrible things that God does, which is a terrible argument. That that may be the worst argument he's made. If you come to if you come to the scripture with any presupposition, you come with a presupposition that God's good. Again, because and the reason for that is that means just no matter how maybe God has a. Uh, if you guys have 
heard the story what is it i have no mouth but i cannot scream it's about a vindictive ai that tortures people for an infinite amount of time just puts them through a lot of pain and they removes their mouth and and he just tortures them endlessly in in all sorts of ways uh indefinitely through the future so if god is like that and calvinism is true um still god would be horrific even if the Calvinist system says that God is not horrific in that scenario, God would be very horrific. Um, and it's not, it's not very convincing to me just to say, oh, in that system, God's a good God. I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know if I accept that. I'm adding up uh, Iretic to the chat. I put a chat stream link on the God is Open Facebook page. Iretic, welcome to the chat. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so um, how, what do you think about this argument that Mike Winger can't uh, criticize Calvinism because if Calvinism was true, then God is blameless in his acts of torturing children? Well, yeah, he's got an obvious bias. I don't. I, he hasn't explained it yet, really, has he? I, I think, no. He, well, that was his explanation of why a Calvinist can't be judged for their own merit from what I'm from what I'm making out. But uh, I think the real reason is that Calvinists have an established foothold in American theology. And so you're, you're fighting against this uh, force that actually has a little bit of weight. Whereas open theism, it's easier to just dump on and to dismiss. And it's a lot easier to do that and uh, treat people who you want to be your intellectual opponents nicer i think that's what's going on here oh well i mean that that part's definitely going on it was interesting it is interesting how like leighton came out pretty forceful like no they're brothers i gotta treat them the same mike winger comes out eh, i don't know about that and then you know leighton kind of tempers what he says a little bit he's like, like oh oh those are just <laughs> you know i don't like that i don't you know that reminds me it, too much of the republicans it reminds me of peter in in the New Testament, so Peter's the peacemaker, mm -hmm. and the open theists uh, will say are Paul and Mike Winger. That will say is James, and uh, Mike Winger is the powerhouse, and then uh, Peter has to be this mediator and go between between these two. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of what it reminds me of. I would I wouldn't say Mike Winger. I I, I guess uh, since he here's what I think um, <laughs> the dividing line is. I put it in the comment section out on YouTube, but. Um, I think the the dividing line is classical theism. That is where open theists separate themselves from almost every. You, you got know, some every, barking every dogs. sect, every sect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know. So Mike Winger did us the favor, and he said some open theists might be saved. I'm just going to go out and say that. Return the favor. Mike exactly. Winger might be saved. <laughs> we'll go with that. Right. Hey, and only God knows a heart. Oh uh, yeah, that he's always just and he's always right, and if and that therefore, if determinism is correct, and God is always just and he's always right, then somehow, um, what Jai Packer and others say, it's an antinomy. You just don't get it, Leighton. But somehow, God's completely deterministic, and he's not culpable. And you just, you're just too dumb uh, to to get it because God <laughs> apparently determined for you to be too dumb to get it. Uh, so that's just the way that it is. Um, and on the other side, if open theism is true. And and we again come to the presupposition: God's good and He's just and He's right. Mm -hmm. Then I would still conclude that okay, God doesn't know near as much as we thought He did know, but He's still good and just as right. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so you see what I'm saying? I, th I think either way. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree with you there. I think that that's it to me. I go, I cannot entertain the idea. And I don't mean like emotionally, but I mean, intellectually, I can't sustain the concept that almighty God has some sort of moral flaw. And even if the world looked a hundred percent, like God somehow must be doing something wrong here. I would have to conclude I'm obviously wrong. Yeah. Like, can you God pause that? And, and here yeah, is the fear of the Lord. Pausing that. So we take the Mike Winger approach. Um, no matter what the world looks like, God can't be doing something wrong. And then we take the approach of the biblical authors, like the psalmists and uh, uh, Jeremiah, who says, God, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Uh, uh, Jeremiah equates it to like a rape. And the psalmists say, you're, you've hidden your face from us. Why are you doing these things to us? And they criticized God and God's actions. And so you got the Mike Winger mentality, this holier art than thou. Oh, I'm so pious that no matter what things God does, I'm going to say it's good. Oh, you're you're so holy and pious for saying that. Uh, Mike well, Winger. that's a that's a second time, though. He's mentioned. I, I don't see how it follows uh, that on open theism that what what about open theism makes God morally uh or what was his term <laughs> somehow lacking right well his argument is that uh, since god in open theism watches the world and sees these wrongs happen and does not intervene then god is still morally culpable apparently well, at the same it, level as he would be if he just knew from all eternity apparently it's, well, it can't people. be that because he, i mean he believes in free will so on that score, on that line of argumentation, we just, you know, we just go further with free will and actually believe it, you know, believe it's free. And we don't see how God knows something that isn't been, that's not there to know. So, uh, but he believes in the free will of man. And so how is it God escapes the moral uh, implications of whatever his argument is against the open theist. I, that I, that's not clear to me at yeah, all. Yeah. So it, what he he's not doing a our system evades this problem. He's doing a two quoku fallacy that that's basically like, oh, I'm evil. Well, you're evil too. Therefore, we we don't talk about this. It's like if I have some sort of uh, mental flaw or a flaw in my argument that is mirrored in my opponent then we just get to ignore each of our uh, mental yeah. flaws it's it's a it's a fallacy of logic you still have to deal with your system and i think the best way to deal with it is the terence fretheim way of dealing with it is god does maintain some culpability over the creation that he created the question is how okay. much and how much should he do how much uh control should well, he exercise that's what I'm talking about. But every view has that issue. I mean, and I'm not saying that, but everybody that I know of in any discussion that comes up, usually if in between honest people, they admit that the open theists have, you know, the best, uh, you know, someone like Pritchett will admit, you know, if open theism is right, you know, they have the best theodicy about with the evil concerning God and evil and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. I would say it's the least culpable, but he thinks that since open theism still has this culpability, it's on the same level of his culpability. And you can dismiss open theists on 
on the, the goodness of God arguments because we still have problems. It doesn't solve the problem uh, to okay. his satisfaction, which... But I want to know what the problem is because I don't feel the pinch of any much of a problem any more than I felt bad if my son, who I loved and we chose to have, uh, would, you know, somewhere down the road, you know, do some heinous thing. So have you ever seen the movie Watchmen? No. No? Okay. So in it, there's this uh, superhuman character. Uh, he's the big blue guy. He's, he's like a Superman, basically. And he watches this guy shoot a lady. And he says, he criticizes him for this action. Why, why did you do that? You killed her. And he turns it around back on him and said, you could have stopped that bullet in midair if you wanted. You know, so he's he's turning around the culpability back to that individual, that superman. Oh, that had the superpowers? Yeah. Who could have stepped in and mitigated the evil that Even they were what watching he did. happen. Right. And so Mike Winger is doing the same thing where since God could have stopped that bullet in midair and God didn't, then God maintains that uh, culpability. Okay, but see, what I, I'm not, sh I'm, I mean, that, that might be what he's doing, but what I run into an awful an awful lot is somehow God is, uh, well, uh, you know, when, when I, you know, we'll go to a, a proof text, you know, in Genesis or something about, uh, you know, God, uh, uh, make, you know, uh, like he regretted making mankind and flooded the earth. Oh, well, God was wrong then, huh? God made a mistake. <laughs> God made a mistake. You know, I mean, so like, I don't know. I don't, I, I define mistake differently, apparently. I mean, well, right, because they're, they don't want an actual <laughs> argument. They don't want to discuss concepts. They want to get a sound bite that they can use against you. They want to use the moralistic fallacy. And so that's and, what's happened there. But so, we have, and that's we, the moral sense in which God is fa fails on open theism. I mean, somehow, according to them. All but, right. So we got about a minute left in this. Wisdom, and we'll I see go, what they say. I trust you. I think I this is part it, of a bigger thing here. If someone asked me, my defense would be God's good because he's God. And I will not let the circumstances of this time convince me that he's not good. Um, so I so I tend not to use that, that concept of like some people say the Calvinistic God and he is therefore like an, a bad God. And I go, you are treading on, in my mind, you're treading on dangerous ground when you make statements like that. Um, so I would say... I can understand how a deterministic God would make it very difficult to have a theodicy or, a, or to deal with the problem of evil. I don't know how I would, I have a video on the problem of evil. I don't know exactly how I would make that video if I believed in determinism. Right. Uh, so I'm thankful that that's not the case. <laughs> so that's just a little clip from a larger interview. I think it's in the larger interview, Mike Winger says to stay away from laymen. Only go to your. I'm gonna put you on mute. You got some chips going on there or something. Uh, just let me know when you want to talk again. But uh, I think in the larger interview, there was a clip in which Mike Winger says, uh, "Only go to your pastor for information." So I think very much he is an elitist. He wants this elite class of theologians ruling over Christianity, and it feels to me that. That's his actual issue here with open theism and why he considers Calvinists better than open theists because they have the established um, theology. Uh, the, the, they have a theological pole in America so that they could be treated as equals in this contention for theology. Um, he's, he looks up on them 
it's it's it is like uh, Arenic mentioned politics. It's like the Republicans and Democrat elitists, both sets of elitists, the people who hate Tulsi Gabbard, the people who hate Trump. Um, the Democrats hate Tulsi Gabbard. The Republicans hate Trump because they're not insiders. And you know who gets along? Obama. They, he goes out and has sporting events with Bush, and they all love each other, the, the, the John McCains of the world. They're the elitist insiders, and they want to keep it. They want to keep politics, this elite insider uh, in, individuals. They don't want outsiders coming in, establishing new lines of authority. So, um, like a lot of like lately or you know for a while now when i get a chance i'll when this kind of subject comes up kind of a any kind of appeal to authority or that kind of thing it's usually you know concerning orthodoxy maybe in the christian church but you know i just like a lot of people have they always champion this you know this idea that we stand on the shoulders of giants and I, you know, I just come out flat against that. And I just say, I don't think we stand on the shoulders of giants, not in the church, not with the orthodoxy that they set up. I mean, maybe they were good thinkers, but somehow they got way off track. So I don't have any respect for these guys. And I mean, who hasn't read through the church fathers and gone, woo, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, anyone should uh, start with uh, Philo of Alexandria. If you really want your mind blown, look through Clement's works, uh, look through Origin of Alexandria, um, and your mind will be blown how out of out in Looney Tune world, these people and these thinkers are. And so these people are held up as some sort of uh, foundation for Christian theology. They're First of all, they're just people. And second of all, their reasoning and their thought process doesn't quite appeal to the Western mind. And uh, their, not, their, way, their way of dealing with stuff. Well, I object to the... Uh, the uh... I mean, it was very early on this arc, this uh, um, this uh, this layered, um, you know, uh, structure of the church became, you know, politicized, right? And so it was all about these church that it was all the educated so-called, you know, leaders that just, you know, it, the hierarchy was set up, you know, and and it was like I, I it was like the establishment against all you know against any dissenters they would just be crushed you know i i don't like and that's not the attitude of the new testament that i see we should love each other we should be free to disagree uh, i think paul teaches against denominationalism in any form uh, that would separate brethren and uh you know we just have to it's like in america we have you know liberty we're supposed to be free people you know what liberty if if you're going to have it, it comes with costs you know it means that maybe a pandemic will run through and kill a lot of people and people you know maybe they made the right decision or not but they they got to be the ones making their decisions you know that kind of thing and the same in the church you know and we need to love each other we need to realize we all have the holy spirit and that we're all wrestling with you know what's true and so why can't we just uh be united and our spiritual, uh, our Holy Spirit unite, you know, what unites us, and, and then let the doctrine be secondary, whatever it is. But don't you know people like to form little cliques and hate other people? You're well, forgetting it's important this basic... to be able to throw out the heretics. I mean, that the first, you know, well, what are you going to do about, you know, 
<laughs> well, you figure it out among yourselves. That's what yes. you do. In so law. I'd like to kind of turn the conversation. They they were saying, oh, open theists have this real philosophical thing. They come come to open theism from defense of goodness or God or or Leighton Flower says they turn to open theism because they have a, a specific philosophical idea about what foreknowledge means with fatalism. Um, I'd like to point out there is, I got the spectrum map of open theism that I developed. And basically it shows that there is a variety of traditions, how people arrive at open theism. And Thomas J. Ord has a great article, article like Roads to Open Theism, which, which delineates three specific ways of getting to open theism. But turning to this figure here, this map, I have uh, uh, Phil's kind of like a flow chart between people who come to open theism from purely philosophical grounds and people who come from purely biblical grounds. And we have people like William Hasker all the way to the left. And who's William Hasker? He's he's a philosopher. He, he, he writes dense philosophical treatises. He he doesn't really deal with the Bible very much. Um, you, you see a lot of philosophical reasoning as to why God is like he is, yeah, almost entirely theological speculation. Over there, you got people like Alan Rhoda, Thomas Ord, and Thomas Ord comes to open theism because he believes God is love. I He gave away a free book once, and it was his book on love and God, and I, I downloaded this weird, weird uh, digital book player in order to read it. It was something like blue something. And so I pull up the book, I start reading it. I'm like, what is, I, what is this? Him and I are on entirely different wavelengths. I, I, I didn't know what was going on. Th Thomas Ord also sent uh, Michael Saya one of his books to review once, and Michael Saya responds. I was talking about Michael Saya, and Michael Saya relates this to me. He's like, I, I sent him reasons why his thing, his arguments were wrong. I said, what about this Bible verse and this Bible verse? And Thomas Ord responded to me. He said, oh, I didn't, I don't see those texts as useful. <laughs> like, entirely entirely different mindset that's kind of nice that's a good i don't find them useful uh yeah it's like okay i guess you just pick and choose which bible verses but but that's that's who thomas ord is that's that's how he does theology his theology of yeah. love is where he prioritizes love overall and so that brings him to i really his, like him i mean he's, I, he's a great guy he is but he he's very philosophically oriented oh yeah 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 right and then over I put Greg Boyd towards the middle. Greg Boyd has things like uh, his Christocentric hermeneutic, where you have to reinterpret everything in the Old Testament in in light of Christ, which in his mind means to make it that God doesn't do anything that we might criticize today, like killing entire people groups, genociding uh, people, because that doesn't sound nice. That doesn't sound like what we think of as Christ. And so Gregor Boyd implements these philosophical ways in order to deal with the okay, Bible I interject? philosophically. Yeah. Yeah. So regardless of what we might disagree with Greg Boyd on, he's not, uh, he's, he's pretty clear in what he's articulating and it's a very biblical, uh, and very Christ centered, um, way of looking at things that you have to admit, but it just reflects back to Mike's comment about what he said about Greg Boyd and that whatever he said was pretty demeaning. And I think, uh, I think uncalled for, or well, maybe we Mike Winger isn't smart enough to, to understand Greg Boyd or something. We don't know what he's referencing. He didn't give us an yeah, example. He doesn't say. Yeah. And so it might be valid. It might be totally baseless. 
Um, but we don't know because he didn't give an example. <laughs> so uh, uh, there's there's a question here. Who's the most biblically sound open theist? I would say that someone like uh, Walter Bergerman would be, but uh, I would I'd probably get a lot of flack for that. Does he so, identify as open? Uh, yes, he does. He he did identify as open theist to okay. uh, who who's that pastor guy that uh, Thomas More Thomas. Uh, ooh, ah, I don't. Ah, I lost his name. I lost his name. What's his name? Uh -oh. But uh, he was queried about that. TC More. TC More. TC something. Know. I'm yeah, Idol Killer. Okay. Yeah. Idol Killer was joking because uh, I have myself at the far end. Okay, so here's the question I was I asked. Know. Right. Why would I put myself there? And so why would Bob Enyart be to my left, for example? Uh, so Bob Enyart, I've probably listened to more Bob Enyart sermons than any other pastor in history. And he's a very in intuitive type of individual who has uh, he 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 punctuates all his sermons with a lot of stories about himself and uh, <laughs> he thinks of things like by implication he starts off his debate with uh, Samuel Lambert saying i i think we both can agree whichever view paints god in the best light is the true belief you know so that's a philosophical claim right there sure um and you you do see some other claims of that type throughout his works. He's very biblically based. Don't get me wrong. I got him all the way to the right, but I think he slips some because he does sometimes use this philosophical reason. I don't know if it's rhetorical or not. Uh, I, I don't know if he's doing it for effect on the audience during debates, but he'll do stuff like, well, God is not power. God is not knowledge, but God is love. It's like, well, uh, okay. What, is, what does it mean when the Bible says God is love? And uh, to assign specific philosophical notions to it and use it as an argument, I, I don't know about that. You're 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 using philosophy to <laughs> kind of guide the discussion. So he does stuff like that uh, sporadically in his works. So it's a philosophical argument. People like Michael Saya. I think Michael Saya and his camp of individuals had a big problem with. Uh, things that God might do that might be criticized. So he's doing the Mike Winger thing where where no matter what God does in any context, it's it's good, stuff like that. God can't be criticized. The people in his camp, I don't know if it was actually him who did it, was uh, on the God is Open site, um, who took it very much exception to when I wrote that Moses changed God's mind through argumentation. So why do you think, maybe you could speculate, why do you think an open theist might be mad at me if if I say that Moses used arguments to change God's mind? I'm going to say that you probably don't have an answer offhand. So that the, the oops, answer. Oops, one second, I, I have my other mute. mic muted. <laughs> so it seems it seems to um, infer that God uh, is has a imperfection in his. Uh, current knowledge or something maybe yes yes okay so i just quoted the bible i quoted exodus 32 and i think it was this uh taylor william taylor williams whatever the guy's name is uh he got real mad at me one day because i said moses changed god's mind using arguments and his counter argument was that would assume that god doesn't already know that argument in his mind 
it's like okay that's huh? that's an argument from philosophy and that's not an argument from the text you look at the text he lays out these arguments and then the text says god changed his mind and then further commentaries say he changed his mind for the reasons that moses gives right. and uh, then I would, all, it I says would, that moses changed god's mind i would answer but i mean there's not really any evidence that i mean i you couldn't you allow that god uh knew of the uh the principles behind the argument but the argument still had never been made to anybody i mean there might be a million arguments so what right so it's it's uh, those types of things where which will get you pushed to the left on this chart if you're doing argument from implication uh if uh we see here trending theological positions neo-molinists uh, neo-molinism is a philosophical system and so you say okay here's god's knowledge and here's how God's knowledge operates, and he knows all true counterfactuals about the future. Well, the problem is about that is the Bible never defines that anywhere. You don't see the Bible defining God's knowledge like that through the Bible. It's a philosophical position, which then becomes defended as if it's a biblical truth found in the Bible. It's a philosophical argument being made for biblical works. Does that make well, sense? Yeah, classical theists do that all the time. Whenever they want to say whatever their their doctrine is, you know, it's it's actually derived from simplicity, but it's defended from the scriptures. Which, I mean, if you read it, you know, God sees by taking in information. You know, He sees things, right? He He learns. You're right. So, anyway, go ahead. So okay, so this is this is how this flowchart works. Uh, the more you use argument from implication, you're pushed to the left. The more you use philosophical notions to defend your position, you're pushed to the left. The more you focus on biblical text and biblical meaning, you're pushed to the right, uh, regardless if you believe it or not. I think Walter Bergman, I, he he's an open theist, and uh, he treats the text very diligently. It's not clear that he agrees with or believes the text, but he treats it very diligently, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. that he could say, oh, here's what the text is describing and treat it fairly, although not necessarily endorsing that text. Someone like Christine Hayes, who's a biblical scholar, not a Christian, not a Jew, uh, she's she's not in that theological tradition. She's a, she's a secularist, maybe, maybe an atheist or agnostic. And uh, she treats the biblical text very accurately and very well because she cares about the material. So you're not going to see her making arguments from outside the text. Well, she would be an open theist. If I mean, she was, she, if she was I a mean, Christian, she would. She would say the Bible t would be, you know, presents an open God or a, a, right a God that's whatever of the God that we believe in as open theists who can. She, she, I mean, I think she would. She would present it as the writers of scripture are presenting this kind of God to the world. So Ida Killer writes, he says, isn't there a good argument to be made from both scripture and philosophy? Yes, absolutely. That can be the case. But to the extent that you're not using the Bible as your authority, it pushes you to the philosophical side of the spectrum. And that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. Again, we like, we really like Greg Boyd. We like Thomas Ord. We like uh, Alan Rhoda and Richard Rice and John Sanders, pretty good guy. John Sanders, he decided not to have Walter Bergerman write in the openness of God. He, that that uh, I think it was Terrence Fretheim 
had uh, talked to John Sanders about this. Um, he said, why don't you have uh, Walter Bergerman write this? And he says, oh, he doesn't uh, believe exclusively in God's love or something like that. Because of the way Walter Bergerman treats the text and it doesn't prioritize God's love over the textual concerns, he was discluded from being a collaborator in the openness of God. So uh, he's using these philosophical concerns rather than the biblical concerns, which will push you to philosophical, uh, which is not bad. It's not like uh, you're you're now a lesser human being if if your name is Idol Killer, if you're Warren McGrew and you're you're put over towards the philosophical spectrum. It's not a grading scale. Uh, there's there's no pluses and minuses. It's not like A and F over here. It's just okay. where do you fall in the map of open theism? What brought you to open theism? And some people uh, they say, well, without neo Molinism, you know. That's that's what led me to open theism. Well, you're going to be categorized towards the philosophical. Someone else who says, well, God changing his mind throughout the Bible, that's what led me to open theism. He, he'd probably be more towards the biblical spectrum. That's what this is trying to uh, picture here, this, the spectrum, the map of the various theological positions. And again, they're, they're diametrically opposed in some instances where I could read a Thomas Ord work and be like, ah, ah, ooh, I don't, what is this? What is this? And maybe someone like uh, Thomas Ord could, would read a Michael Saya book and be like, oh yeah, this is not good. And so it's not like it's a monolith. There's all sorts of ways and reasons to come to the Bible um, from these different perspectives and positions. Well, I would, I would want to, I would tell Warren or um, like, I think, Okay, so uh, within my own mind, right? I can I think of uh, okay, philosophical justifications, argumentation, all that kind of thing, and then I think of uh, you know biblical uh, proof text argument, you know biblical stuff, and and if I ask the question as a Christian, uh, which am I gonna, which do I put my hope on to relay, you know, wh which which way do I have the the best chance of hitting the truth, I'm going to always side on the Bible and, you know, just digging into that to find the truth of a matter, you know, and I guess, I mean, nobody uh, uh, throws out philosophy when they're looking at the Bible, right? I, I don't think so. So philosophy is an explanation of uh, a method of expl explaining how a text might work in a system. So if you say, well, what kind of theory of time does the Bible use? I would argue that the Bible uses presentism. And I wouldn't say, oh, it's it's definite that the Bible uses presentism. But you look at the evidence. God says, uh, in the future, I will remember the past. And you don't see time travel in the Bible. And uh, you see God remembering the past and sometimes remembering the past. And, and with rosy glasses, like, oh, Israel, when we first... Uh, when you first became my holy people, you were so good. It's like, oh, did you, did you did you read Exodus? God, God, this this nostalgic look at your own people might I might be a little bit I might be a little bit of nostalgia, like like you're you're kind of fluffing it up a little bit. Uh, Israel was very problematic from the start, and so God, you see God interacting with time in that fashion where He remembers the past, He uh, expects the future to happen. He, he plans on doing things in the future. So presentism is most natural to the text. So 
presentism is a mechanism. So if someone says, what type of time theory does the Bible use? You say, well, it appears to be presentism, but arguing that the Bible most definitely is presentism and nothing else, or the Bible is neo-Molinism and nothing else is a philosophical argument rather than a biblical argument with offering a mechanism to explain a set of data. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that um, my uh, whatever I'm doing uh, with either the you know the biblical text or or, or thinking about philosophical things is I just want to be consistent and I don't want to be contradicting obvious or things that seem obvious to me that are you know reasonable, logical, and you know follow basic rules of thinking and property yeah. and all that. So real quick on that note, Bob Enyart has this uh, explanation of Genesis 22. I don't, again, I don't know if it's a rhetorical device for for rhetorical effect for the audience, but he says uh, in Genesis 22, can God decide not to be in a location? And uh, which is actually a good way of arguing because it puts, it makes the person he's interacting with have to either take God's omniscience or God's power to do things and uh, prioritize which one they think uh, trumps which. Or his omnipresence. Them, yeah, and his omnipresence too. It makes them have to prioritize these contradictory attributes. But it appears that Bob Enyart believes in uh, how Mike Winger characterized God's omniscience, where God can choose not to know things, which is, again, a philosophical position. So you wouldn't want to just be arguing straight up that. But uh, I think I think that's interesting that he uses that argument. I don't know if he actually believes it though. Is the thing, or is God? Does God have nations? Sometimes in the Bible, it appears God might have nations. And nations is, is not not having knowledge of something. Omniscience is having oh, all knowledge. Okay. And nations, uh, this this is a term used by McCabe uh, in his classical writings, is that God doesn't know some facts or truths or propositions, something like that. Um, and so not, not every writer believes that God has omniscience. There's a Jewish scholar who's commenting on Genesis 22. <laughs> I, I, need to, I need to find that quote again. But he says that God knows uh, the overarching events, but not the details. And so in Genesis 22, he has to go down, or in Genesis 18, in the Sodom incident, and since he has to go down and verify the details, because yes, God knows all things, but he just doesn't know those those little details, and he needs further input on those details. And so I like they Will have Duffy's explanation on that, by the way. Oh yeah, Will Duffy has a good explanation as well, and his is not out of the realm of possible old Jewish takes on that. And uh, but it's just interesting that these options do exist. So there, there is an option of omniscience in which the omniscience is not exhaustive. It's a knowledge of major things, but not minor details, which are then verified in the story, which is an option. Okay. Well, okay, but those options, maybe uh, maybe we're too unwilling as uh, open theists uh, to uh, uh, delve into the other, other perfections of God, you know, or, or how that might, or, or, you know, yeah, how God is actually in the present, what he presently knows. You know, I mean, maybe it's not, may, like, you know, we, we assume perfect 
knowledge of the present. You know, I, I generally do, you know, cause I think I, I generally think he sees everything. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and as, as far as respecting any human heart, I, if he's a, if he knows every human heart, then I don't know what else he would need to know. <laughs> morally speaking, uh, you know, he could let th other things go in nature or something. Go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah, Jepeth asked a question. He's a good guy. Uh, he says, "Do you believe open theism has perfectly harmonized the scripture?" I wouldn't say that. I don't. I don't know if the scripture could be perfectly harmonized, quote unquote, especially how language works and how history works and how how we record things like you'll find the same instance in which jesus is is it's, it's the same encounter but the quotes from the different gospel writers will have different words used right so you know it's not direct quotes it's well, not open directly coded. theism isn't something that really is going to give you a whole system that answers every biblical but i would say you can't have a a true biblical system that doesn't include the openness of God as part yes. of your system. I would say that, that every single author of the Bible was an open theist, yeah. that it wasn't even a theological option yeah. uh, to be a Calvinist at those times. It just wasn't part of their mindset. Even the scenes who are the most deterministic of the Jewish sects had elements of free will where people had volition to do things apart from God's control. But so there was nothing like the Greek idea going on with uh, starting in the oneness of God. And oh yeah, there's, there's none of them had this idea of uh, perfect immutability, perfect simplicity, uh, and, being outside of time. You don't get anything from any of the biblical authors where there, there's such thing as time that God could be outside of or above, or time is a created thing. None of these concepts are held by any of the biblical authors. And so open theism harmonizes all the biblical authors to the extent that you understand that their frame, their, they have a shared common framework when they're writing. It's not going to harmonize everything and else. Look, you can't even understand the Bible unless you believe that God does have emotions, that he can change his mind, that he gets upset, that you know he doesn't know certain things at certain times. It doesn't make sense on a normal reading. You know, the, the, the stories, they don't make any sense. So here, here's another question. Is it true that Calvinism and free will are exclusive? Both cannot be true. Well, yeah. So if, if free will is the ability to decide between options, and there's a system that states that no one has any options, all events are necessary events by the common definition of what a necessary event is, that means that event has to actualize and no other event can actualize, then that's not free will. You you have no choice in a system in which all events are forever fated to happen. Have propositional truth values eternally assigned to them, uh, not at any starting point. So in Calvinism, it's a mistake that for Calvinists to portray their view as God at some point in time decided to create the world and decided to create it in a deterministic sense. In Calvinism, God is absolutely simple. Um, there is a divine, simple, timeless decree, which is not, it doesn't lead from anything. It's not flowing out from God. It's equal to God and uh, co-eternal with God. It's part of who God is. 
it's not discursive reasoning in God's mind. God didn't think about what kind of earth he's going to create and create it. The entire universe is coexistent and as necessary as God is. The whole universe has to exist in the way that it does exist. And so that would be the opposite of what most people would call free will. Calvinists will say mm -hmm. that there is still free will because we act according to our impulses, which uh, makes no sense because my computer right now is acting according to its impulses. Right. It has programming code that's going on this predetermined course. You wouldn't say that my computer has free will, even though I could turn off this program and turn on a video game. Those options do exist. The only, the only time we think a computer has free will is when it, it, it glitched and did something that we didn't think it was supposed to be doing. Well, we, we could be fooled. Uh, like if you're playing The Sims, it's, it's a video game where you control these little people. There's a free will box that you could turn on and off. But what that free will box does is it means that uh, you don't have to force your people to go to the bathroom. They can go to their bathroom on their own. <laughs> okay. Well, anyways, yeah. So uh, Jacob writes, uh, just turned in. What of Mike Winger's is being examined here? His interview with Flowers. Yes, we just listened to the interview with uh, Leighton Flowers in which Mike Winger said that open theists are worse than Calvinists in his estimation. And uh, he has unspecified problems with Gregory Boyd, which he won't tell us about because that would be too informative. And, and so he likes Calvinists better. Did he say yeah, that? Yeah, he, he likes right. Calvinists better. And Elaine uh, Flowers does this diplomatic thing where he kind of walks back. He, he he puts a defense of open theism out there. Mike Winger gives pushback, and then Elaine Flowers pulls, reins it back in, and, and walks back a few steps, and still giving a less less uh, hardy defense of open theism. <laughs> So Idol Killer says, I've come to see God's dynamic omniscience as essential to properly understanding the scripture and the gospel. And so I think that's great. Um, I think wherever people fall on this line between philosophical and biblical are, are good positions to take. They're not. Yeah, I, I put Warren firm, firmly in the blue side. <laughs> Would you really, though? Just kidding. Uh, He's well, right in I, the middle. So. I, I think he would take issue. So if, if we put... Warren, if we put him on this list and we put him all the way to the left, I think he'd 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 take issue with that oh, because yeah, he wouldn't like that. Because people, yeah, it's funny they'll say, "Oh, I have this philosophy that I think is really good and defends open theism." Oh, okay, so you're kind of a philosophical I mean, open theist, and they'll get all bad. No, I'm a biblical open theist over here. Yeah, remember he is a former uh, five point Calvinist. Yeah, hardliner. Yeah, but if I were to slip Warren in here, he'd be somewhere to the left of Bob Enyart. Maybe on par with Michael Say. I think Michael Say and him share quite a lot in common. Uh, he should probably read some Michael Say books, which are for free on the God is Open page. Michael Say has published them to the files portion, and we have the files hosted on the God is Open.com webpage because Michael Say is a great guy. I went I and visited him. Some of his, yeah. yeah, I visited him in Seattle with my kids, and, and he has all these like Venus fly traps and stuff at his house. He's just a fun guy. <laughs> cool. He's good. Actually, like I, I could like if I were to honestly rate Warren, I, I think he's like 90 percent biblical and everything I read. Right. So. And so uh, an, a future podcast needs to be problems with dynamic omniscience. It, it is a philosophical position that there, there are probably some data points in the Bible that don't necessarily align with that. Uh, just like we were talking in Exodus 32, in which which uh, Moses uses reasons to convince God. He proffers reasons 
which God considers and he accepts those reasons. And the text reads for the extent of those reasons. Another thing that I've been, people who are open theists have got mad at me for saying, uh, this might be this might be the Michael Saya here that why he's pushed to the left is because I say that God makes um, judgments and actions in, in part based on his emotional state of being at the time of making those decisions. Of like, course, he does. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well. Here's the problem with that. Um, they they want to consider God like a data machine with all these. Uh, calculations at the forefront of his mind always and that would preclude this emotional element dictating the extent of god's actions and so well, that just takes away any really any serious meaning from you know god's anger burning hot or those kind of adjectives you know that are you know and it, i think even the biblical authors they want to wait until god cools off and then they'll go talk to him or that kind of thing, you know, or not wanting to just go speak to him while he's angry. Right. So like Jeremiah says, don't don't punish me in your anger. Wait to cool off, God. And then punish go. me. Right. It's yeah. like mm -hmm. and then um, in the Psalms, it's like, God, don't wait to cool off when you're punishing our enemies. Do it now. while the yeah. Iron's hot. Yeah, <laughs> because people think that God, people in the Bible, writers of the Bible, they believe that God is an emotional being who uses his emotions to dictate his actions and uh and and includes that as a factor in in what what response he gives to various uh, stimuli hey, hey there's a reason jonah uh thought it was well within uh god's mercy to spare these guys i mean right. i think that there was some of that in jonah and so proponents of dynamic omniscience that like to downplay Moses being able to positively contribute arguments to God's state of mind. They like to downplay God using emotions to as a factor in his decision-making process. As if now, so if God uses his anger to ramp up punishment during a judgment, now, now he's unjust. That's what that William Scott Taylor guy accused me of that. Oh, God would be unjust if he was punishing in anger harsher than he would if he wasn't. Right. Paul tells us, be angry and sin not. Right. And so emotions are very much a characteristic of God, so much so that it's a trope among atheists that, oh, God is so angry and vindictive in the Bible because they clearly see that God has emotions in the Bible. God's not impassable like classic theism. God has emotions. God, God is passable. You can... You can weary God. You can anger God. Moses angers God in uh, the beginning of Exodus, Exodus 4, when he starts refusing. He, he starts refusing where does, to. Where does God ever act out against somebody that's uh, righteous or behaving themselves? Where does God act out against someone who's behaving themselves? Yeah. Do you read that? Uh, I don't read that. You know, I don't read God like, you know, except for Job, you know, but that was uh, set out. You know, you know, it's exactly what's going on, you know. And so Job was mistreated by God, you know, in a, in a real sense. You know, he was allowed to be mistreated just, you know, to teach everybody what? To teach everybody a lesson? Yeah. So uh, Grickson says, who made this chart? Oh, I built this chart as a visual way that people can understand that open theism is not monolithic. 
And so to do that, you highlight the differences and historical influences. Like a lot of times uh, anti-open theists will say, oh, all this stuff is coming from Charles Hershorn and Alfred Whitehead. It's like, who's ever heard of these guys? I've never... I've, I, I was reading him. some Harstorn and uh, some Whitehead. It's like, okay, that's pretty dense stuff going on here. But it's not like Jesse Morell's ever heard of these people. And guess who lived before these people? Uh, L.D. McCabe. He's an open theist. He lived well, before these people. True, true. No, no, like nobody modern, no, not many modern guys in the church are coming to open theism because of Whitehead or anything. But <laughs> no I mean, anybody that looks at the history or reads up on it or critic or the criticisms of it should be uh, familiar with those names because a lot of times they're brought against the view just because of who they are and they're you know because of their philosophers and this and that right and so the chart here is not to say who's right and who's wrong it's just saying there is a vast diverse theological tradition when you're coming to open theism it's it's not monolithic there's multiple reasons and that's uh, Layton Flowers doesn't like to address it. I think Layton Flowers understands that there are biblical open theists, but it, it's a lot more useful for him to dismiss open theists on philosophical grounds. Uh, but Mike Winger seems to portray open theists. Oh, you're just all well, you guys are yeah. interested in defending Le- love. Layton's pretty good, uh, not be, you know, as far as not being hypocritical, but I think it like because he's he, you know, like he's always makes a point to understand that you got to deal with the Calvinist that you're dealing with, you know, because, you know, there's, a, you know, there's always the accusations, you know, you don't understand Calvinism that, you know, it's like, well, okay, let's, you know, cause, and it's the same with open theists, you know, you gotta get, you gotta get their reasoning and argue against their position. Like me, I'm very biblical. You know, I'm as biblical and open theist as I am uh, uh, an amillennialist or a new covenant, the- you know, theology or whatever else I believe. I believe it. Then I just apply the same. I get it from the Bible. You know, right. And so not- uh, mm-hmm. down below on this chart, we I put historical influences to try to state that there is a diversity of historical influences. It doesn't all come from the same lineage. And then I put trending theological positions to kind of illustrate, you know, what one camp thinks and a different camp thinks. How about uh, evolutionism? You could, you can in fact be a biblical open theist and believe in evolution. You might be the type who thinks that Genesis is written as an allegory or or myth for some sort of teaching lesson, or that the the words used in Genesis are meant to uh, portray something in a mythic element. And so you can, in fact, be a biblical open theist and an evolutionist. But the trend is that people like William Hasker and Alan Rhoda, these people, I don't know if Alan Rhoda, but I was at a William Hasker talk where he's talking, all, the whole talk was just about evolution. It's like, oh. <laughs> but uh, people like Bob Enyart, Bob Enyart has the Real Science Fridays where he talks about creationism, young earth creationism, Jesse Morell. I don't probably turns three themes, uh, old earther. I, if I was guessing, I don't know offhand. I, I guess I believe in a kind of evolution. Um, so like as a panentheist, right? Uh, I believe like, so I don't know how it happened. I'm just saying though, but God, in my view, the being of God became the physical universe, you know? So I don't know how that, uh, you know, how 
I don't know if it was an evolution or just a, like more like a special creation event where God just, you know, caused everything to take its properties. Yeah, you know. pro probably not what well, not what most people think of when they think about no. evolutionism. No. But people like William Hasker, definite uh, old earth evolutionist type of thing. And uh, yeah, they do believe as uh, Jephthah writes, God waits billions of years to interact with humans. Yeah, that's what they believe. That's what they, which it, it's fine. Um, you could in fact be a biblical scholar. There's some biblical scholars who do treat the Bible in that fashion that it's not to be taken as literal history. And I still classify them towards the biblical side as long as they're making literature arguments. They're making arguments yeah. about the literature rather than philosophy. Well, I don't, yeah, that's why I don't even consider that a very good argument against the view. I mean, so, I mean, isn't God patient? And isn't it until the first couple arrives that things ha matter? And so... Anyways, I, I don't think it was an argument per se. It was just a question about how they view how they I view mean, history in reality. Right. And they're just critiques thrown out or sort of little thoughts. You know, what about so that? progressive revelation versus inerrancy? People like Greg Boyd will will tend to think the Bible's progressive in its revelation. That means the Old Testament doesn't quite have you can't take it seriously. These people are just kind of writing about God in the terms that they saw God, but God's not actually like that. But by the New Testament, you see God as he truly is. And so Greg Boyd will take a position like that. Uh, people out on that left-hand spectrum, they'll definitely, oh, it was so funny. Will Duffy and I, we went to the randomness conference and we went to a talk on, on uh, Genesis, Genesis, uh, probably Genesis 22, probably the Abraham incident. And the guy gives this philosophical speech about uh, how the text means a certain philosophical thing. So after the, the after the whole talk, Will Duffy and I go up to the front of the room to talk to the guy. And uh, Will Duffy's like, wow, I'm, we, we came to this event and like nobody believes the Bible. Like everyone's open theists. None of them believe the Bible. And Will Duffy's like, wow, I, I was surprised to find someone who actually believes the Bible here. <laughs> and our, he's like, no, I don't believe it. I just take the text seriously. It's like <laughs> he, he didn't he didn't he he did this whole talk on this biblical event that he described. Uh, he doesn't believe the event happened, but he's taking the text seriously in what the text does say. So, mm -hmm. oh, it's so funny. Will Duffy was so shocked. Oh, it it was hilarious. That's funny. but yeah. So there's well, that's kind of like what Christine. Uh, what's her name? Christine Hayes. Yes, that's kind of what she does. I mean. If when she, if when she takes a serious look at the text, this is what it says, you know. Right. I th Even I though think... she doesn't she doesn't believe it, you know. And so that's my number one goal: is what does the text say? What are the arguments you can make of the text? And then uh, a secondary thing is what philosophy was held by those writers that might make the text make sense. And so when you're putting down philosophical systems. My goal is to try to emulate something that makes sense in their system. And I don't necessarily think it's neo-Molinism. I, you know, I, I was oh, yeah. wondering, I'm just curious, um, do you know or uh, are you aware of uh, how, um, how long before the church didn't have any Jews in it? <laughs> 70 uh, AD. To say. 70 AD, uh, the whole power structure in Jerusalem was destroyed with the downfall because this is where James was. This is where the 12 was. They were all centered in Jerusalem. 
and Jerusalem is taken down. They're all killed by these Romans, and Christianity has no power base. And so that's when you see the rise of the Gentiles. The Gentiles have to step up and take over the church, and that's where you get all these Hellen Hellenizing influences. Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr never okay. met never met one of the apostles. Never. Uh, what, uh, I'm, mm -hmm. yeah. what I'm more curious about is like the attitudes that you see uh you know, not too late, but you know, by you know, Mar people like Martin Luther, right? And and you, you, it seems to me after the destruction of Jerusalem, where you have God judging these Jews, you know, it doesn't take a hop, skip, and a jump to think, but those guys early on are going to have, you know, develop anti-Semitic, you know, anti-Semitic, uh, uh you know, feelings about Jews, you know, like their God, you know, the whole thing, the God haters, the God killers and all that. Now, so, uh, <laughs> that's only to say that I don't think Jews, like if the church would have developed out of a Jewish uh, group, if I mean, if the if the church would have never left Israel, let's say, I don't think uh, classical theism would have ever developed within that nation of people. That I mean, it's just a, I don't know. But does that make sense to you? Like what I'm saying? Yeah. It was so, only because it went out into the Greek world, and then at a point when the Jews could just be sort of come to a point where they're looked down upon, and and they're like the gypsies of the world or something. Go ahead. Right. I think this animosity between Christianity and Judaism stemmed from the Gentile takeover of the church. Number one. And number two, the Jewish rejection of this church. And so it starts mm -hmm. in Judaism. Uh, Jews are indistinguishable from Christians. Uh, Jewish power centers get wiped out. Gentiles take over this church. And then the Jews who exist, they say none of these things happened. Jesus wasn't the Messiah. There was no, no apocalypse that, that he brought down. He didn't reestablish the kingdom. Uh, you guys are worshiping the raw God or something like that. And yeah, uh, that, right, right. that, uh, theological conflict led to this separation where now the Gentiles are saying, oh, you guys are the Jesus killer, stuff like that. You see very interesting interactions with Judaism in the early church fathers, like Justin Martyr. He deals with a Jewish sage or Jewish scholar, and he argues on philosophical grounds who God must be, whereas he criticizes the Jewish scholar. He says, you Jewish scribes and scholars and theologians, you guys believe God has a body. You guys are so backwards. You guys are so dumb. <laughs> right. But so, I mean, I can see where uh, even like if you read Galatians, you know, for a certain way, Paul gives you a lot of ammo to go after Jews <laughs> uh, that aren't Christians, you know, or that are preaching the, the old way. You well, know, yeah, let them the be Jews anathema, like Paul all. Them, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. the Jews hated Paul. Paul's out, out there teaching not to circumcise. They hate the guy. And so uh, he probably has a lot of uh, reverse animosity for those those reasons. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's funny. So this is where this, this chart came from. And this is how those individuals are ranked. And uh, as Brian Cross writes, he says, I actually like a lot of guys on the left, though. Some of them are good guys. I think so too. I think oh, they're very nice. And, and oh, I like William people. Hasker a lot. Yeah, Hasker's nice. I met I him. Like Alan Rhoda. Right. I, I met him. Richard Thomas. Rice. I don't. I haven't met Richard Rice, but Ord is very personable. Uh, he does a lot for open theism. He's brought a lot of people to open theism because people are very attracted to his.
philosophy of love where love is the overriding attribute. I was so, a yeah. big fan of Pinnock. I was, you know, and yeah. he, he, he holds that same kind of love. I mean, he does hold love in high regard. Yeah. So perfect being theology, I note down here in the comments, that's one of these things that will push you towards the philosophical spectrum. So if you say, Oh, God is perfect. And these are the attributes of what you must have in order to be perfect. Um, therefore, God must be like that. Those are philosophical positions that will push you to the left. And a lot of the people in like the Michael Saya camp, they'll do this with God, that if you mention anything that might be unflattering towards God, they'll criticize you on philosophical grounds of perfect being. I wonder uh, how do uh, certain incidences come to mind? Like one would be where God uh, has... Uh, you know, he has that council and he wants to take down Ahab, is it? Or Yeah. And, uh, you know, so he, this guy has an idea. I'm, I'll go, you know, I'll be a lying spirit yeah. in the ear of his prophet, in the mouth of his prophet. And so it seems like God is sending a lying spirit, you know, as part of this, uh, you know, the way I see it is, look, God is doing that. He, he can play a ruse if he wants to. To bring judgment against this guy it has it's god is completely happy with it right and that's i have actually been criticized by fellow open theists on that as well uh god can't lie oh okay that's what it's an interesting assertion um what about right here they'll say oh that was satan he was just letting satan do a satan thing it's like what are you talking about that's that's not how the text reads I, it's it's a messenger from god and god is uh searching for answers and chooses the one and it's it's god sanctioned it's not satan just doing satan things so you agree with me i mean i guess okay right yeah well god's definitely uh sending lying spirits god's responsible for that uh god deceives people in war Remember the Gideon incident where God sent people dreams of being destroyed by a giant loaf, sent them into a frenzy, and they all killed each other because God was using mental tricks in order to demoralize and mislead enemies. Did you say actually, were you saying that at Gideon that, that yeah. battle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's like every like everybody's scared or like they're having yeah, you, you get the picture of like there's no reason they should be all confused, but God brought that on them, you know? Yeah, people treat it like a, if we make a inflatable army to send to southern France to pretend that the Allied invasion of Germany is coming from the south, they think, oh, that's a lie, and God would never lie like that. What? You can't, you can't in fact, <laughs> use deception against your enemies in war. That's a fine thing to do, and it's not evil. So, I mean, I it's almost seems like God's plan when like even Paul, he, when he says that, uh, that the rulers and, you know, they would have never crucified him had they known. So that's kind of like God really pulled a ruse over on them with the whole yeah. crucifixion thing. So I don't kill rights. It'll be interesting to see where you place me on the chart after my debate with Tyler Vela this October. I don't know if I could watch another Tyler Vela oh. debate. Stop oh. interacting with this man. Oh, he's, He's insufferable to the extreme. <laughs> Will Duffy tricked me into watching that one Tyler Vela debate with him. He said, Chris, watch this debate. I got some new arguments. I watched it. I was like, never again, Will Duffy. I, I can't trust anything you say ever, ever again. That's terrible. What are you doing to me? Oh, this Tyler Vela guy. Oh. And now and now Warren McGrew, he's going to trick me into watching another Tyler Vela debate. That's going to be awful. Oh, man. Well, he's I... I I personally like Tyler. I mean, I wouldn't diss him like he's, as a person. He's, 
doesn't have he's a single whack. bone of intellectual integrity in his body. Well, he's a work in progress. Let's let's say. Oh, okay, okay. I I call him Tiny Face Steve Anderson. He's kind of. I got almost that. got him one Sunday. I went to I went to his church where he's an elder, but he was sick that weekend. Oh, imagine that! Imagine being in his church and then he's your elder. Oh no. Coming well, he to wasn't, him, yeah, he, he wasn't a to, teaching elder, but yeah, come to him for advice. Hey, hey, elder, help me out with something in my life. No, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Just oh, man, to say man. the future does not exist is it valid? I don't, I don't think the future exists. I don't think there's any indication in the Bible that the future is a thing to exist. It, it's funny how Westerners think about propositions. We think about objects. We think that. There's these isolated things in history called events that can be classified as an object and given a uh, truth value. It's, there's a toggle. Maybe mm -hmm. it's a, a toggle for three variables, true, false, and indeterminate, and it's assigned to this object. I don't know if anyone's a computer programmer, but you build computer code. You build isolated objects, which then have properties with toggles. And a lot of people see reality like that it's it's not so clear that that's it, how the biblical just, authors treat the world around us i thought you were just describing uh that dynamic omniscience or that is that is what dynamic omniscience does it also classifies the world in this western mindset that everything is a neat and tidy object in platonism this is true uh there there's the the world of the forms and so in, in this mindset there's objects which have those toggles, true, false, in computer programming. Maybe it's a, a GUI element, a, a user interface element that you could do visible or invisible, it has size properties. But it's, it's not clear that the wor world works in this fashion, nor that the biblical authors think in this faction, fashion, especially if something like divine fragmentation is true, then you might have a different perspective on the world that doesn't quite fit these models that we're trying to build with terms such as neo-Molinism. And that might not be a worldview option for them at the time. Okay, can I ask, what is that? What's um, split um, thing? What is was that? Divine fragmentation? Yeah, divine, I'm sorry, yeah. Divine, that that God like... could be in various bodies at various points of time with various independent minds or wills or personalities. Why does it have to be an independent mind or can be so it it's okay. it's an option so because okay, on my view i mean that describes my view i mean um my panentheistic view is that the being of god he can either be visible or invisible whatever he wants to be and you know if he like Meep! now i'm now i'm appearing in this as a physical visible and i'm eating that's what i am and you know there's you know, I, it just makes sense to me. We don't have to posit a separate mind that's still there up up in heaven or something. It's it's hard to classify even who we are. Just just now talking about uh, neo-Molinism and object-based thinking. I met this girl while hiking. I was in South Dakota with my family. We're hiking and this girl had her dog and then she joined us on the hike and I'm talking to her. And uh, we start talking about objects and and uh, people and uh, if if we are who we were a minute ago are you someone new or are you the same person how do you mm -hmm. classify that we, we we talked about star trek transporters if if the transporter 
uh, cuts you up into pieces, sends your pieces across the room and reassembles you. Did you just die? Is that a new you that steps out? What if it just copies the pattern and creates the exact same pattern and you step out? Is that you? Is that a new you? Or is that the same you? And these questions mm -hmm. are not cut and dry. And no. yeah, that, that was, uh, she's like, oh, we're talking about the ship of thesis problem. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> we are. And so right. there's the question. The ship of thesis, you replace one part at a time over the course of decades. Um, eventually you get a brand new ship. Is that the same, same ship as when you yeah, started? Yeah, so I, I think it's true that at the end of our lives, we're not the same person that you know we were when we began our lives in a, in a, in a, in a lot of ways, right? Physically yeah. is an obvious one, right? So but how, how who about we this? Are, the who we are, it, it seems natural that, I mean, the who we are carries through it. There must be something besides our physicalness that makes us who we are. You know? you the know? problem with that is not everyone's gonna agree with that position. Right, but on biblical grounds? Oh, well, not necessarily. Well, philosophically, not everyone's going to agree with that position. They might say, oh, every seven years, all our cells are new in our bodies. Therefore, we're a new person, something like that. Here's right. a question. In the ship of thesis example, you take all those old parts that you switched out. You rebuild that ship over in another harbor. Now, do you have two ships of thesis? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me you either have two or you don't have any. <laughs> well, or or there's some sort of retaining you know, of sense. identity. But the, the interesting thing is we as human beings have a real hard time classifying objects, uh, understanding uh, we ourselves don't intuitively have this object-based knowledge that neo-Molinism is looking for, where there's truth values assigned to propositions. So what is a proposition? What is an event? Um, what can be known, what's not known. Uh, let's take an event that, uh, oh, I die in the future. And so let's say God knows this event's going to happen. Let's say it's a faded or something like that. I could die by slipping on the sidewalk. I could die in a car accident. I could die getting shot to death by some angry Calvinist. I don't know. Um, there's all sorts of ways I could die. So is my death itself a proposition or is it tied to the state of every other molecule in the universe at the time of my event? How are they separable and and uh, unique such that you could turn that into a true proposition to have a truth value? Yeah, it escapes me. But well, yeah, I would just remind to... Warren not to give out Chris's address to Tyler when he's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. Uh, I don't give Warren my address. I don't trust, trust that guy too much. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, well, my whole point is that we ourselves, although we're building these models with this uh, type of object-based knowledge, object-based uh, way to classify the world, we ourselves have a real hard time classifying objects and we can't demonstrate the truthfulness of this classification onto which we want to build this grand philosophy, which then we want to explain the world with. Well, if, if, uh, I don't know if you, where you want to go with this, but, uh, I would like to talk, uh, maybe I could talk to you about this, uh, divine or this, uh, dynamic omniscience view because, uh, or at least what my object my like I was trying to, I think I, I was a little bit into it with Drew and, uh, and Warren here, maybe. Um, okay. It just has to do with uh, uh, the 
okay so it seems like the view entails that god knows it's it's like it takes on this molinist view that god knows all possible worlds right you know? and that means all the actions and things that could possibly take place yeah let's I say mean, you have a random number generator zero to infinite uh, god saying, would know and, and you I'm have saying, do you know and, how much how much I like on like a meaningless knowledge that God has to possess. Well, yes, I mean, that's it's, that's it's, true, but that is their position. So if so okay, if but have, anyways, okay. If you ahead. have one random number generator, zero to infinite, going once per second, that means uh, the possible universes that God knows, just considering those variables, is uh, infinite to the infinite to the infinite to the infinite. Yeah, to and then each change represents just more uh you know legs to the spider web yeah you know? right. or just you know more diversions and it just keeps going and I, I anyways oh but anyway my main objection is just like a biblical one and and i just want to see what you think about this and for some reason you know and this isn't the only example but you know where saul is you know, going after David, David's in Keilah, you know, he pretended to be insane, I think, to get in there. And so he's worried, David is, that, you know, am I going to be safe here? Right. So to us, you know, I think that's what's going on in his head. So he, he prays to God and wants to know, look, uh, if Saul finds out I'm here, is he going to come after me? Oh, yeah. Right. That's a reasonable and, thing to ask someone with better knowledge than absolutely, you. Absolutely. Right. And then the other question is, you know, well, if Saul comes, are they going to turn me over? You know? Okay. And then so so uh, David gets his answer. Yes. You know, <laughs> Saul will come. And yes, uh, Keelites will, uh, you know, turn you over. So David leaves. Now, how in the world this is supposed to prove that God knows anything about the future is beyond me. <laughs> right. Um, and so how it's used by proponents of Molinism, normal Molinism, is they say, see, God knew how the future would turn out if that one variable is switched. It's like, well, oh, really? Because now David would be armed with that knowledge and he might do stuff like maybe he might decide to take the city of Kayla with his men and then hold it against Saul. And then they can't turn him over because now he's taken it. There's so many more variables going on there. So it seems like actually what's happening is God saying, or that uh, King David is saying, God, what's the most probable thing that's going to happen right here? And then God says, well, given the known variables, this is what's going to happen. And David says, oh, I don't want to do that. And then he, he leaves. Yeah, right? I mean, look, this is just present knowledge of what Saul is thinking and related to his abilities to to go and get David. So yeah. if Paul know if, if Saul knows that he can go and get that, you know, nothing's going to prevent him from getting him. He will pursue him. I mean, God, I could know that uh, from already reading the story up to that point. You know, I wouldn't know so much about the key lights, but I'm just saying. Well, yeah, God just looks at their temperament and they say, oh, man, here comes the king. And we got this rogue guy here. Uh, yeah, we'll probably turn him over. Right, so we don't right. He knows the leader. He knows those guys. He knows they're like. He knows there are a bunch of rogues that will, at the slightest uh, hint of getting favor from the king, will turn that bastard over. 
Yeah, so it's it's not a proof text for Molinism. It's definitely not a proof text for knowing the future. It's a proof text for God being familiar with the people at that time. If if it even is a proof text for anything. But uh, it's as much of a proof text as the incident in which uh, Abraham has his wife Sarah and says, I know that these Egyptians, if they see you, they're going to kill me and they're going to take you to be their wives. He knows people, people he's never met. Uh, he's he's never been there. He doesn't know their temperaments. He just knows how human beings act, and uh, he states how they're going to act if they see his uh, attractive spouse. They're going to kill me because that's what men do. Men say, "Hey, you're a good-looking woman over here, right?" And uh, I can't attract you on my own merits. And you got this guy here, so maybe I just kill the guy. And then guess what? Now. Problem solved. She's not married anymore. Odds just went up. Hey, lady, I just killed your husband. Uh, would you like to hang out? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you didn't. Well, yeah, you want to keep that part a secret. Uh, well, no, no. You, you, you know, in war, it's like you go in, you kill all oh, the yeah. dudes. Right, right. And right, the right. women, they attach themselves to capable defenders yeah they're gonna attach them. themselves to the toughest guys they can find because right these guys it, they it, they just witnessed the brutal slaughter of all the men yeah <laughs> so absolutely i want to be yeah. with a strong one of those guys that's one thing people don't take into consideration when they're reading the bible how real people act real women if they're invaded it's not like there's a whole bunch of rape going on there these women want to be attached to strong providers who can defend them um, they're they're you're giving themselves over willingly. There's there's a actually a pretty funny incident in history in Rome, in which uh, the Romans went and they captured a bunch of ladies to be wives, and then uh, then the whole that whole city rises up against Rome and they almost take over Rome. But the women throw themselves in front of their their own families to say, "Don't kill all our husbands. We like these guys. We have children with them." Don't do it. And so the women save Rome from destruction from this retaliatory uh, army coming at them for Romans stealing their women. Uh, I was thinking there was this, uh, uh, I mean, even biblically, uh, Isaiah talks about a time, and this is where it's portraying uh, after the pestilence and devastation that's going to come on Jerusalem, right? And in the aftermath, it talks about like 10 women well, uh, you know, try, they'll be trying oh, to attach themselves to one man, you know, uh, and, and it's because, hey, they women are were vulnerable. Hey, my, I don't have any men. I need a man. <laughs> you, there, there's okay. a supply and demand you know, I don't problem. Care. I don't care if you're, you know, not a Hebrew or whatever. Yeah, yeah it's well, they, they don't care if he's already married. They'll attach themselves to the strongest male out there. And so right. that's just human nature. That's, sometimes people sure. ignore when they're when they're looking at the Bible and trying to consider these things. Oh, why did God genocide these people? Well, it could be that if you leave these children alive, children have a tendency to seek vengeance and retribution for the death of their parents, as we see so many times in history. Uh, leaving the children alive is a very big threat to the security of your nation. So, Chris, I believe that God has a pretty thoroughgoing you know, established plan about history. And I think he's got certain ends that he's designed for it to have, despite, you know, not knowing, you know, every detail along the way. 
he knows enough to know that he he's going to be able to bring his plan to fruition you know ultimately you know the the part that matters right so like it seems to me in light of that um uh, I missed my point. <laughs> I forgot my point. No, well, so like, yeah, so God has plans for history. I think that's the biblical position as well, uh, where Paul's talking about uh, God and the nations and pre-appointed times. The, the pre-appointed times, I think, is a mistranslation, but Paul's point in that passage is God's guiding the destiny of history. He's guiding nations to uh, his ends. He's guiding people to to his ends. He He's intimately involved in what goes on in the world. I think okay. that's a pretty biblical position to take. But, but okay, so I remember what I was going to say. So not only is, I mean, detail and every, I mean, see, this is God's plan and he's involved in working out his plan. So my question is, how much time do you think God is, is doing thinking about things that he knows will never occur because only his plan is going to occur? And certain contingencies you know involved in his plan do you know what i mean so this is just respecting all these possible worlds and and every possible calculation that god knows i mean it's just like how much time do you spend on things that you know will never take place that you know <laughs> right? uh, especially when you're involved in actually doing what you know something you're focused on that's purposeful and you have a plan about it. Well, my dad plans on writing a book and he spent a lot of time uh, building stuff that might never come to fruition. So mm -hmm. uh, I need to encourage him to, he'll probably listen to this at some sort. Dad, Anyways, you need to finish I mean, your project, any of your projects you start. Well, but see, I'm sure he, he does realize there's a chance that he's going to finish it. You know, he's not, these are things that he doesn't feel are important that he doesn't know will never happen. I'm saying, you know, these guys are, are positing that God knows all this stuff, you know, and, and it's all fluff. I mean, I don't know what else it is, but what a, I mean, you know what I mean? Like all this, yeah. besides what God knows will happen and what he's working on. I mean, is it, is it reasonable to, to, uh, you know, argument, argue things based on, that that kind of proposition, I just I, I don't know. I mean, like I'm not gonna say that God couldn't calculate certain things, but I don't I like to me it, it seems like dynamic omniscience is a is sort of a it's just Molinism or something because it, it doesn't leave people free. I mean, how could God know every possible world and all this stuff when everyone? I mean, I'm supposing every one of them has these free creatures in it that God doesn't know what they're going to do. I, it right. doesn't make sense to me. Sorry. All right. We got a, a comment. I'd love for you to show me. This is a banter back and forth in the chat. I'd love to show me where God claims to be or describes himself to be open. It'd be nice if there are no inferences included. How about if God says he expected one thing and another thing happened? Right? You'd, you would uh, you'd understand that as God not having exhaustive knowledge. Uh, when... We, we often don't talk about ourselves as having exhaustive knowledge or not. It's basically we know how human beings function and behave and what type of knowledge sets they have. And so a lot of things go unsaid when you have basic working knowledge. Uh, and so you just have to look how they write and what they say. So Jeremiah 3.7, this is God talking. I thought 
after she had done all these, this, she will return to me. So God's expecting one thing. He says, this will happen. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. It's not an isolated instance in the Bible. Often uh, God talks about his failed expectations. He punishes the children of Israel in vain. If you do a word search on vain, I think it's in the New King James. Isaiah 5 is a famous example of the song of the wine press. Yeah, the vineyard where he says, uh, uh, he's, he says, uh, I looked for it to yield wild or good grapes, but it wielded wild grapes. It, what more could what more could have been done to my more? that so I have he, not done? He exhausted his options. <laughs> he looked for these options. And he he couldn't get it to do what he wanted, and so then he turns to violence, which is actually uh, one of God's characteristics. Is that you know sometimes he uses violence to get a job done. Look, why then when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so, so that, that's that's one that's where I would have turned for to answer his question. Yeah, so failed expectations, uh, God talking about being innovative, God often describing himself as being dynamic. One of his key characteristics of being repentant. Repentance is uh in what is it? Uh uh not, I'm not uh Joel. Joel Joel gives it as one of his primary attributes, which is echo echoed in Jonah when Jonah's describing God as well. We got a question. How do you understand dynamic omniscience? Is omni knowledge a present past and the same as uh, dynamic omniscience? Is it the same as dynamic omniscience? That would not be the same as dynamic omniscience. No. Dynamic omniscience is knowing all possible propositions that could ever exist and the truth values of all those past prop propositions, which are now set the truth propositions of everything current as they become set and the indeterminate state of all future events as indeterminate and some of them set at some future events set as God has determined those, those future propositions. Yeah. Because and, as actions take place in the, in the now things are going to be set. Right. Uh, right. So in, this in is, order. this is not the same as just having, a normal all knowledge when the bible describes god god is watching the world so uh, in in the bible god knows the past so god is given knowledge of the past and present but we don't get these huge claims about knowledge of all future events or anything like that it's a it's a philosophical assertion that people bring to the text so Idle Killer says dynamic omniscience simply means God's knowledge is not static. He knows certainty and possibility. It's good if you're making a definition uh, that people who disagree with your views on that can't also claim that definite. Like if you're a Calvinist, you say Calvinism is simply the belief that predestination is true. Well, yeah, I, I believe in predestination. It's a biblical <laughs> word. The word just means something a little bit different. When I use it, I'm trying to use it in the ancient uh, Jewish sense rather than the modern philosophical sense. So I, I don't know if that's quite the best definition. I think you need to stress the idea that God's knowledge is of uh, exhaustive of all propositions, past, present, and future, and all possibilities of the future and the truth values as they become set of exhaustively of all propositions. So this is related, uh, but, um, and it goes back to my 
point. But how how do you what's your take on what people call counterfactuals? Well, yeah, we know counterfactuals all the time. So what I'm not sure what we're getting at. Well, I don't I don't think there are any is such a thing as a counterfactual. Oh, yeah. People use them all the time. So Jesus uses it to mock people. He says, if the people in Sodom had heard, seen the things that I've done, they would have repented. And so that's okay. it's a counterfactual. It just it's, isn't all that it, is, is is uh, it's mocking. Uh, them. <laughs> but it's it's just talking of it's a condition. It's a conditional that's uh, go, you know, injected into the past. That's all it is. It's not there is no fact of a, the matter. I mean, that even, you know, counter right. fact, counter fact, that tells you enough. There is no such thing as a counter fact, is there? Well, it, it's it's how the terms used counterfactual. So if I I could use a counterfactual against an opponent said, if you're smarter, you'd agree with me. It's it's counterfactual, but it's a rhetorical device used to illustrate some sort of point. In this, in that case, I'm calling my critic dumb. Or in Jesus's right. case, he said, "You guys are worse than Sodom." You guys right. are and worse what than I'm Sodom. saying is, all they're doing, I mean, by it's somehow they're this phrase, this counterfactual term is is supposed to be. I mean, it's it's like there's an actual thing that it could could be like that's known in the present like right. it's one thing for jesus to say you know hey if the if the people in sodom would have seen these works of mine they would have repented long ago you know okay that's based on the knowledge that he has of those sodomites and you know what their response would have been now he didn't happen to get go there right he didn't do that there so but so what is that supposed to prove it doesn't prove anything about anything other than present knowledge yeah it, it doesn't quite it it shouldn't be a proof for something but uh the, it doesn't the even is, indicate in uh anything other than present knowledge uh, and, and then conditionals being applied right so, i mean so it, what it tends to be an application of common sense or a rhetorical device you know, if beggars were, you know, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. <laughs> See, there's a counterfactual. Right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't mean there's a horse or a beggar. You know, I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah. If, if I had a dollar for every time Idol Killer was on the podcast, I'd have like $3. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not much, but hey, you could buy like uh, McDonald's for that, I guess, or something. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, everything that isn't real, you know, we can call it a counterfactual. Well, yeah, that's what, that's what it is. And so it, a lot of people see, um, want proof text out of things that aren't proof text. And you, you see that in the use of the Kayla incident with uh, Saul and to, with David. They, they want something to argue their philosophy. They find something remotely similar to it, and they use it as a talking point to talk their philosophy rather than, rather than prove that that's what's actually happening in their proof text. And even scholars can follow for this. So Michael Heiser does that with the Kayla incident with uh, Saul. He's like, oh, see, look at this. God can know mm -hmm. counterfactuals, proving he knows all counterfactuals in the future. Okay, that's 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 not how proof texts work, and that's that's a logical fallacy of composition. But okay, 
Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. All right, we're out about two hours, so we probably should be shutting down about now. My wife got mad at me because I, I guess I missed a church event for the kids. Oops. Uh-oh. Well, thanks for letting me come in. I appreciate it. But uh, it's been fun. All right. Well, thanks for talking. Um, Randall writes, is God free? And the answer is, of course, yes. In, in, the, in the Bible, God is the living God, which is neglected by classical theism. God is not living. God is stone. God is immutable. He's impassable. And he is a dead God. In the Bible, God is a person. He's dynamic. He's free. He's the living God. All right. Questions, comments, put that down below. Uh, thanks for watching. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Irenic. Thanks for having me.